Hey, Crack fans. Before we get to today's show, I want to let all of you listeners know about the revolutionary work being done by our friends over at Swing Vision. Now, all of us as tennis players are constantly searching for that piece of information that's going to give us that one, two, three percent edge whenever we step onto the court. We want to know, am I hitting my forehand with enough depth? Am I accurately placing my backhands? Am I employing patterns on the court that are putting me in an optimum position to experience success? Thankfully, all of those questions can now be answered via the app produced by our friends at Swing Vision. Folks, it's extraordinarily simple. You're going to download the app. You're going to turn that app on your phone. You're going to put your phone on the back fence, the back curtain of whatever court you're playing on. You're going to hit record. And then using artificial intelligence, Swing Vision is going to break down your performance. If you click on the link that you find in the podcast description here on today's episode, you'll go right to the Swing Vision website. And of of course, friends who use our Crack Rackets promo code CRACK20 are going to get an additional $20 discount and a free 14-day pro trial on the Swing Vision app. Again, you use that promo code CRACK20, $20 discount, as well as a free 14-day pro trial. How do you find the link to get signed up? Just go back to your podcast feed. It's in the podcast description of this episode. You go to the Swing Vision website, you set up your account, you download the app, you get rocking and rolling, get all the information one location with our friends at Swing Vision. Welcome to the Mini Break, your daily podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, July 8th. There was only one singles match for us to enjoy on day 12 of the 2022 Wimbledon. Thankfully, it did feature some drama as top seed and three-time defending Wimbledon champ Novak Djokovic drops his opening set to ninth-seeded Cam Nori. Of course, Nori, by reaching the semifinals of this event, became just the fourth British man to do so at Wimbledon in the open era. Nori receiving immense crowd support as such, and he rode that crowd support to that opening set victory. From there, of course, though, Novak Djokovic was able to do what he has done so frequently at this event over the years, find his cruise control gear, and ultimately come back to earn a 2-6-6-3-6-2-6-4 victory. Djokovic now advances to his eighth Wimbledon final, 32nd Grand Slam singles final of his career. He's played just 68 Slam singles main draws. He's reached the final of 32 two of them, essentially reaching the final of every other slam that he plays. A testament to the sustained success Djokovic has been able to uh, earn throughout the course of his career. And of course, on today's show, what we want to do for you listeners is break down the mechanics of another successful day for Novak Djokovic on court. Talk about how he managed to flip the script against Cam Nori. And of course, talk about what Novak Djokovic will need to do if he wants to capture a seventh Wimbledon title. Certainly, it's going to be a fascinating test for him in the final against Nick Kyrgios. Kyrgios competing in the first singles Grand Slam of his career, but has never lost lost a match to Novak Djokovic, 2-0 in the career head-to-head. Now, they've never played on this sort of stage with this much on the line, but certainly that is a factoid to hold on to, and the weapons Nick Kyrgios brings to the court, particularly that first serve, that's going to give 
anyone trouble on a grass court, even a returner as accomplished and successful as Novak Djokovic. So what we want to do on today's show, again, break down Djokovic's win over Cam Norrie, a quick retrospection on what Cam Norrie's been able to accomplish this summer as well, and then a look forward to the men's singles final with Novak Djokovic taking on Nick Kyrgios. And to help me do all of that on today's show, we'll be returning champion, friend of our Crack Rackets podcast. Of course, you know him as the host of Monday Match Analysis, host of Three, a tennis show. He'll never listen to this podcast, so I don't have to worry about him hearing me compliment and say one of my dear friends and favorite minds to turn to when chatting all things tennis. Of course, I'm referring to our friend Gil Gross, who is going to join me a little bit later on this show to discuss everything that happened at Wimbledon in the men's singles draw today. But of course, before we do that, want to do a couple of things for you listeners. A, as always, Give a shout out to all of you for continuing to listen. It's why we're able to continue to cover the sport day in, day out. And we know tennis fans deserve a daily podcast. It's not just the action happening at Wimbledon, but the challenger level, the future circuit, collegiate tennis, junior tennis. It's always happening 365, 24 hours a day, seven days a week in professional tennis. We know it's our job here at Crack Rackets to follow everything to keep you all in the loop, keep you the most informed, best educated fans in the business. We will continue to strive to do so and we are immensely grateful for the support we have gotten from all of you in our efforts to accomplish just that of course a massive shout out to our friends at tennis point as well you all know the deal best equipment Best prices, all one location, tennis-point.com. Use that promo code CR15. The last thing I want to do, and this is going to be my opening here for today's podcast, is discuss an event our Crack Rackets team is so excited to be covering, not only from the start, but over the course of the next two weeks. And that, of course, is the SoCal Pro Circuit, a series of six ITF events that have happened over the past several weeks in the Southern California area. It's a tournament that's offering countless professional playing opportunities to the many aspiring juniors, collegiate athletes, young pros trying to build their way up on the tour. So frequently, those players struggle, particularly here in the United States, to have and find the playing opportunities for them to do just that, to test themselves against their peers, test themselves against their fellow best players in the world. And the SoCal Pro Circuit has made an extraordinary effort to provide these players with just those opportunities. And of course, all these events, 15K futures events that have happened at the University of San Diego, Barnes Tennis Center, Kramer Club, all of these fantastic facilities located in the Southern California area. It's also featured some outstanding tennis. And again, we've had coverage every championship weekend, semifinal Saturday, championship Sunday. We've been so fortunate to be able to bring coverage of that event, that circuit, to all of you listeners, all of you tennis fans on our Crack Rackets YouTube channel. Of course, that coverage continues over the next two weeks. It begins tomorrow, Saturday, July 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern time. We'll have coverage of our men's and women's single semifinals that'll carry all the way through till about 9 p.m. Eastern time with the end of our doubles finals. Of course, we'll be back then 2 p.m. Eastern time Sunday to cover the championship matches. And you look at the plethora of players that have found success on this SoCal Pro Circuit. Players like in August Holmgren trying to establish himself on the Pro Circuit. He was an NCAA singles finalist this past year at the University of San Diego. His very first week on the 
the pro circuit. He wins both a singles and doubles title on the SoCal Pro Tour. As such, he's been able to work his way into the top 600, continue to work his way up the ATP rankings, create bigger opportunities for himself. Of course, similar players in that mode. Duarte Valle, recent University of Florida All-American graduate. He's been able to work his way into the top 500. You've got other players still in college, like an Aaron Cayetano or a Snow Han, two players that will return to USC's team next season as ITF Pro Circuit champions. And McKenna Jones, who was an NCAA doubles champion a year ago, she earned singles and doubles titles during this SoCal Pro Circuit. I know I speak these names as if everyone should know who these players are. And I know a lot of you tennis fans, particularly those who are more focused on what's happening in the tour level events. And I cannot blame you for that fact. There's only so much time in everyone's schedule. Certainly, you know, many people have lives. They have jobs. They're not able to just focus on tennis 24-7, 365. Again, I'm aware of that, and that's why it's my job here at Crack Rackets to do that for you. But case in point, and I've turned to this stat repeatedly, there are currently 10 players in the ATP Top 100 in singles who played college tennis. Now, there are only three on the women's side right now, but... If you look in the ATP and WTA doubles rankings, 32 of the top 100 players on the ATP doubles rankings all played college tennis. That number is similarly over 15 on the women's side as well. I apologize. I don't have the specific number in front of me. I know it's greater than 15 though and certainly – if you looked at the Wimbledon mixed doubles results, I believe it was Skubsky and Krawich who just won the mixed doubles title, defended their title. Both of those players played multiple years of college tennis early in their careers. A lot of those players, most notably Cam Norrie, just lost in the semifinals. He played at TCU. Kevin Anderson, slam finalist, University of Illinois. John Isner, obviously, University of Georgia on the women's side. Danielle Collins just played at the University of Virginia, you know, two-time NCAA champion at the University of Virginia just reached an Australian Open singles final. Jennifer Brady reached a Grand Slam final. She was middle of the lineup during her college tennis tenure at UCLA. The point being, if you're looking for those hidden gems, that next generation of players who weren't immediately having success on the Pro Tour, right? They weren't the Carlos Alcarazes or the Yannick Sinners of the world, those sorts of exceptions to the rules, but players who are still immensely talented. And I'm telling you, in the next few years, Ben Shelton, Emma Navarro, Peyton Stearns, the recent class of college tennis superstars, they're all going to be top 100 players. You will be seeing them competing at events like Wimbledon, U.S. Open, the Slams, the 1,000-level events. All of those players get their start at at events like the SoCal Pro Circuit on the Futures Circuit. And that's why we here at Cracked Rackets are so excited to be able to have the opportunity to broadcast that action for you. Again, last weekend, whether it was Aaron Cayetano, who was the number one college tennis player in the country for much of the season, she knocks off 14-year-old Eva Jovich. And if you haven't watched the 14-year-old Jovich play, the young American is going to be exceptional. She's already just so good at everything. If you give her, I don't know, a decade to develop muscle, strength, I I quiver at the thought of what that player could potentially be. And so, again, players like that on the men's side, Zach Sfida, who was a two-time Boys 18's Kalamazoo champion, got wild cards into the U.S. Open. As such, we saw last year Sfida, you know, really tight four-set match in the second round of, US, of the U.S. Open against Yannick Sinner. He has worked his way, you know, 
it, through this draw, and he's another player we see alive here competing this week at the SoCal Pro Circuit. And with that in mind, quickly, because I know the focus is the 2022 Wimbledon. You want to hear from Gil more so than me about our thoughts on today's Djokovic victory, what we think about that blockbuster djokovic Kyrgios final. But again, coverage of uh, the SoCal Pro Circuit going to continue this weekend on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Starts 1 p.m. Eastern time on Saturday, 2 p.m. Eastern time on Sunday. By the way, we're doing trivia throughout the course of this broadcast. All you got to do to, uh, the reason we're doing that trivia, we're trying to give away a free 30-minute virtual lesson from Paul Anacone. All you got to do to get yourself signed up to win that free lesson, answer one trivia question. You don't even have to answer it correctly. You just have to answer the trivia question, engage with us throughout our broadcast. It helps us with the numbers. It's what our friends at SoCal want to see from our Cracked Rackets fans, that level of engagement with their tournament that may otherwise be lacking. So, Again, if you want a shot at a free virtual lesson from Paul Anacone, the chance to watch some extraordinary tennis uh, throughout the course of the weekend, tune in to the SoCal Pro Circuit. Some of the players you'll have the chance to see this weekend still alive on the women's side. Uh, 18-year-old, 17-year-old, rising a recent senior graduate, going to be a rising incoming freshman at Duke, Katie Codd, who has advanced to the semifinals here. Codd, I believe, going to have the opportunity to play uh, the the San Diego event compete for U.S. Open Wild Card later this summer. Cod, you know, number nine recruit in her class, and you know, blue chip going to Duke, just a name you're going to want to get familiar with. Certainly, uh, she's got a fun semifinal matchup as she's going to be. Uh, uh, she will likely be taking on the winner, excuse me, of two other players, college standouts. Two players, by the way, who have already won titles on this SoCal Pro Circuit. You've got Snow Han, the rising redshirt sophomore at the University of Southern California. Han, still just 20 years old, again, won a title in San Diego a couple of weeks ago, has worked her way back into the top 1,000 and you know has worked her way once again into the later stages of the SoCal event. She's having so much success here now. 13-4 uh, and four is Snohan here uh, in, tw- excuse me, that's McKenna Jones' record. Snohan here in 2022 now, 10-2. Uh, Overall, during this SoCal Pro Circuit, she is having so much success. Of course, she's taking on McKenna Jones right now as I'm recording this. Jones, doubles winner, singles winner already in the SoCal Pro Circuit, former top player in the country as well. Uh, Again, top 1,000 now in singles and doubles, slowly ascending her way up the rankings. Of course, you've got other dangerous players, 18-year-old Ya'i Yang, who is an outstanding 23-6 and six this year on the Pro Tour. That includes a couple of finals as well as a title in Cairo earlier this season. Again, 23-6 and six on the ITF Pro Tour. You want to know who the rising teenage stars are? Ya'i Yang proving she belongs in that conversation with her run of success. Of course, you've also got former Junior U.S. Open finalist and rising Stanford sophomore Alex Yepafanova taking on rising Texas junior Malika Rapalu. A lot of talent across the board, not only in the singles, but in the doubles action as well. On the women's side, of course, on the men's side, fun names, veteran names across the board. Here's some guys you may not have heard about in a while. Sekou Bangora, who, of course, is top 250 in the world back in 2016. The now 30-year-old, wow, that makes me feel old. 30-year-old has dealt with so many injuries, but trying to work his way back on the pro circuit. He's now 20-8 and eight overall on the season into the semifinals here, where it's going to be a fun matchup for Bangora as he takes on Nate Ponwith. Ponwith, 24 years old, was part of that Tommy Paul, Riley Opelka, you know, 
Taylor Fritz crew of players that trained down at the USTA pond with a standout player at Arizona State at the University of Georgia reached a final in San Diego about a month ago. Now back into another semifinal round here. He's going to surpass his career high ranking of 654 with his run of success this week. And then, you know, again, you get a veteran mixed in there as well in a Sikaguchi, uh, the 30-year-old Japanese player, number five seed into the semifinals as well. Of course, doubles. You've got so many players with college tennis ties. And I do, by the way, want to give a shout out to the event happening in Waco this week as well. Given the rivalry between Tennessee and Baylor, which again, many of you Wimbledon fans may not know about, but it's real, that the University of Tennessee got three of the semifinalists at the field on the University of Baylor's campus. Somewhere James McKay is celebrating, somewhere Michael Woodson, the Baylor men's tennis head coach, is screaming. But with all of that said again, SoCal Pro Circuit continuing this weekend. We'll have coverage of it on our Cracked Rackets YouTube channel. Starts Saturday, 1 p.m. Eastern Time, Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. Going to be joined by former top 100 player and Stanford All-American Bradley Klon on our broadcast as well. So we hope you will join us for that. But with all of that said, that's my opening for you listeners now. It's time for us to talk Wimbledon. And to do that, we got to bring in my friend Gil Gross. Westoff, hit those credits. Let's get to my conversation with Gil. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Joining us once again on the podcast, a man you know best as the host of Monday Match Analysis, host of 3A Tennis Show. You'll hear his commentary spread throughout the various platforms of the Tennis Channel. But of course, I know him best as the Reese Davis to my Chris Fowler. It's our friend Gil Gross. Gil, welcome back to the show. How are you holding up? Holding up. Holding up well. Uh, Less work today for for us media folk with only one semifinal. It's 5.17 Eastern time when we're recording this mini break. I'm going to get to take a nap today. I'm like, I'm amped. Yeah, you're absolutely right. One singles match for us to break down. Of course, there's still juniors action, challenger action, futures action to entertain us uh, as tennis fans. And I did my intro before we got to this part of the podcast on the SoCal Pro Circuit. You had the opportunity to dip your toes into that SoCal action last weekend. Did quite an admirable job filling in for me, I must say. I was a little afraid I was going to get back to Indianapolis and you were going to be in my room and West was going to be like, listen we got to talk and I was like no 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 um but all that said you enjoy yourself some SoCal Pro Circuit action yeah absolutely we were just talking off air about how you know the LA Open it doesn't get bigger than that at the Kramer Club um and you know it's like the it's really the climax so it was uh, an honor to to call the semifinals and got some good core good storylines fight a man as you like to call him let me ask you this would you buy some stock in the side in the spider man right now yeah, I was telling you it was hard to evaluate him because because uh, his opponent was offensively incredibly powerful, uh, but was was uh, not making Svita play as much because he was having trouble harnessing uh, the power. He's 18 years old. He'll get there. Um, but um, 
yeah, I, I, I have no reason not to buy stock, but I also am a little tentative in terms of uh, having any strong opinions on him. Fair. I love me some Aaron Cayetano. You mentioned Jovic there under your breath, the 14-year-old American who I alluded to in the intro. I was so salty. I love you, Aaron Cayetano. I think she knows that. Go Trojans. You know, fight on. Um I was so salty. I was like, I might get to call Jovic his first pro title. And then like 2032 Wimbledon, when they're showing the the circuit video, they'll be like, let's go back to her first title 10 years ago at the Kramer Club. And then they'll be like, Alex Gruskin saying something about the Spider-Man while talking about Jovic. That worked well. Um, <laughs> just unfortunately had that moment robbed of me. But no, to your point, obviously, as much as we get to enjoy that, we also have some slam action to enjoy right now and the reason I wanted to have you on the podcast today to discuss Novak Djokovic's four-set victory over Cam Norrie. Let's just start big picture before we break down the mechanics of the match because sometimes I think this is lost on fans. It's something I don't do a good enough job harping on because frankly I don't know what's left to say but it's always worth admiring. 68 total Grand Slam main draws in Novak Djokovic's career. 68 total main draws. He's reached the final in 32 of them. I mean, I know Navratilova, Everett, Graf, like they're going to get similar numbers as well when you go back and look it up. But to do that in this era, with the degree of physicality it takes to succeed in the three out of five set format in men's tennis— it's just remarkable, Gil. Like, it's it's laughably excellent. And as much as I complain about the lack of new players breaking through, it is always worth admiring. Like, the only thing more perfect than his hair is his resume. Yeah, so he's got the record now, right? In, in yeah. major finals, he pulled ahead of Federer. It was either 33, I want to say. Yeah, I think 32. 30, yeah, 32. 32 was the tie. And yeah, exactly. He pulls ahead with 33. Right. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, he... I guess people forget that there was a, a period in his career after that triumph in 2008 when he won the Australian Open where he was making a ton of finals and, and losing in a lot of them. And the transition that we saw as uh, Djokovic brought in Boris Becker was he started winning all the finals that, that he got into. But for a very, very long time, we have been seeing Djokovic get to finals at an incredible rate. So quick correction. It is 32. He had 31 was the tie. So this is final number 32. Don't get mad at us, Djokovic fans. But to your point there. We I gave think, him an extra. They're not going to get Yeah, mad. exactly. They're going to be like, oh, you guys think he's getting into New York? And it's like, <laughs> yeah, man, we'll see. Uh, you know, near election time, a little gift to the anti-vax crowd from the Biden family. Uh, you know, the big thing, though, when you talk about him breaking through and just this degree of success. You look for Novak Djokovic. This was his 43rd Grand Slam semifinal of his career, which again, 43 and 68. Like, what are we doing? Let's just let's just talk about that for an hour. Um, but you know, for him, you look at the record: 32 and 11 overall in those semifinals. He lost six of his first eight. Six of his first eight. So overall, now he's 30 and five. In his last 35 Grand Slam semifinals, he hasn't lost a Slam semifinal since the 2019 Roland Garros semifinal, the Dominic team, the match that was played over 27 different days and might actually still be going on at Roland Garros had team not had to withdraw with injury. Um, no, but that that's the last one. Like, that's the last semifinal he's lost. He's won what now? Eight in a row 
in the semifinal round, and it's just what is it? He's now made eight finals at all three, uh, all four slams, all three surfaces, or whatever it is. It's just. Yep. It's laughable. It's it's just laughable what he continues to accomplish. He's what thirty freaking five years old, still moving, still yeah. still moving incredibly well. Uh, it's it's yeah, it's amazing because it, there's no there's no look. This is likely going to go down when we look back at 2022. Even if he wins Wimbledon, this is likely going to go down as a kind of a rough year for <laughs> Novak. I know it's crazy, which is insane, right? <laughs> but in terms of like the macro zoom out. What is the trajectory of Novak Djokovic? It's not down at the moment at all by, by any stretch. You look at what he did last year and what he's doing, what he's doing this year. I mean, he needed, he needed a nice run at Wimbledon. He needs to, I think, cap this off or it'll go down as, as an especially difficult year as we'll get into the the final against Kyrgios. But it's uh, that semifinal record that, is to me almost more important, uh, sorry, more impressive than how many finals he's been to because that is a win rate against elite competition. A player who has gone through a, a field of 128 divided by four. Um, a Dude, field, are, you know, are you looking for the number there? Well, I would love the number, but I know, I know I'm not going to come up with it. Round of 32. Right, okay, so... Yeah. It is a he is beating someone who just got through a field of 32 at a major at that clip. Yeah, <laughs> no, like 25 of 30 is what you hope to do on the click in buzzer in your college classes. You're like, all right, I'm going to get full credit for the day if I only miss five. It's like he's doing this at the slam semifinals with that sort of pressure. And to your point, I'm glad you bring up the big picture. And obviously, via our friends at Tennis Abstract, we can always keep the big picture in mind. And look, we're going to get to, you know, again, you, you point out the fact he's still moving. That That's such a good point. And it gets to the fact that he can still turn it on in a moment's notice in a way seemingly no other player can because Rafa is always turned on. I think it's a completely different story. Djokovic has that ability to play that first set and then be like, no, 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 I'm fine. Don't worry. Like, give me, all right, start the clock now. Hour and a half for the next three, no problem. You look for Novak since the start of 2021 because I think that's the big picture here thing. Yes, it was a slow start for him in 2022, but since the start of 2021, 77 and 12 overall. It's an 87% win percentage that's higher than his career average of 83.3. You look at the hold percentage, 86.5. That's higher than his career average of 85.8. You look at the break percentage, 32.5. That's higher than his career average of 32.1. Now, the numbers are close. This may be the end of the Novak Djokovic prime, according to the numbers, but it's still in that prime range. It's still better than his career averages. And this is how we can get into the match. If you watched today's semifinal, you could see two all, second set. He hits a terrible drop shot. Nori tracks it down. He passes him down the line. From that point on, you know, very next shot, a better executed drop shot. He covers the net well, gets to the net, puts it away. Has his break opportunities at 2-3, isn't able to convert. But from there on... It was all Novak Djokovic, and just you saw the top form guy, the same guy you saw from two sets to love down against Sinner, the same guy you saw with 56 minutes on the clock against Van Reithoven, where it was like, all right, it's time for me to win now. 
Yeah, absolutely. Like he the the lockdown mood. Yeah. The the mood that he gets in. And I think this is always a tell that you're in trouble if you're playing Novak Djokovic when he's reacting to every mistake in a way like, what the hell am I doing? I just missed. (laughs) Uh, That's when, you know, he's in like this dangerous mood. And that's what we saw for the last three sets where. I mean, the, the unforced error count, it was four. Uh, I think it was five in the second set. I think it was four in the third set. Might have those two reversed. Uh, then it was eight eight in the fourth set. You know, the way he controls his mistakes is absolutely unbelievable. And that's the thing. You go into that match and you're like, how is Cam going to win this? What, what might Cam's advantage be? Well, maybe he can play cleaner and more consistently because he's not going to outgun Novak. His first serve isn't bigger. His forehand isn't more potent. He's not a better volleyer. Uh, he, you know, his timing isn't better, right? So, but maybe, maybe he can play cleaner, but can he? Probably not. And, and I think that's kind of what we saw is, is the, the discrepancy really in how each player was able to just execute efficiently there was a, a big gap there because Djokovic and his offense was automatic and, and Nori was not. Uh, 12 of Novak's 28 unforced errors came in set number one. And to your point about Nori gunning it, I thought he went after the forehand in that first set. Go watch his hold for the set four six two. some of the forehands he hits on the rise, in particular down the line. He was challenging Novak's on-the-run forehand. Anytime Novak gave him any sort of time on that forehand wing, he would change direction go down the line, force Novak to do something. And, you know, the natural response there is to play cross court to the Nori backhand, right? Well, that line drive, flat, low bouncing Cam Nori backhand gave Novak issues throughout the course of set number one. I mean, opening game of the match, what Novak dumped two backhands in the net, three backhands in the net. And you look for that final break to take that 5-2 lead. He skies a couple of inside out forehands just all over the place and, was not focused, was just, you know, mentally seemed to be wandering. But then I'm telling you, like, so uh, the match, every, uh, the, the uh, point uh, so many people will point to, 3-4 second set, right? 15 all, Nori has Djokovic misfooted, has an easy backhand volley, fluffs it wide, and then from there plays a bad drop shot that Novak tracks down. He gets broken for 5-3, Novak's off to the races. I still think it was that three, that two-three game, that three-two for Novak, where he kind of—that was the first time where it really felt like he he focused, where he locked in, and to your point, he just turned it on. You saw the set, the unforced errors go away, mm-hmm. and yeah, I agree that those couple games, those first couple return games of the second set, there was an immediate like, oh, he's not missing anymore, mm-hmm. and. Look, the first set, I mean, he he really was a mess. I mean, it, it really was bad. And I thought he was very tight. That was kind of my read on it, just feeling the pressure and not have the footwork and the timing was just way off. And and Nori, Nori's ball, like it's a it's a nightmare if you're not feeling it. You must because because you're not you're getting such a different ball on his forehand and his backhand in terms of the the spins, especially with the backhand being flat and the forehand being loopy and and top spinny, that I, I think it's hard to get a feel and, and a rhythm. You almost need to time each one individually and kind of calibrate your own game 
um, twice instead of once. Cause it's not like, Oh, I'm, I'm getting used to his ball. Well, which ball? Because they're completely <laughs> different. And then I agree with you about that, that game, you know, in the second set, Nori had a couple of, of difficult service games. Some that, that you're alluding to where his first serve was just bailing him out, mm-hmm. but there were too many mistakes from Nori from attacking positions. And ultimately it kept happening where I think Djokovic's speed and defense just seemed to really get to Cam at a certain point when, when Novak stopped missing because Nori just didn't have really enough juice from the back of the court to hit through Novak, which is not surprising. Then he was like, okay, I can't hit through him. Let's drop shot. Let's come to the net and drop volley. And Novak was just covering it. He was just tracking it down. And that's where it's, you got to tip your cap and, um, it's kind of what Djokovic does, but the way he was able to shrink the court against Nori, I think was giving him serious issues. Yeah. I mean, it's hilarious. Some of the stats you can pull up for Novak. He's 285 and five when he wins the first set in majors. I mean, a 98% win percentage. You're not beating him if he wins the first set. And even when he loses the first set, as Cam Nori was able to force him to do today, 44 and 36. So it's like, all right, you have to win the first set. And even if you win the first set, you're still probably not going to win. Like, it's just amazing what Novak's able to do. Now, to your point about Nori, I I agree with you. The forehand that looked so successful because, again, go watch the first set, how definitively he was hitting it down the line and spreading Djokovic to that deuce side. He just started spraying. And it hap- It started early in the second set. He kind of lost his mojo there. You know, he hit two aces to close out the first set, but he actually made, I think it was 45% of his first serves in the opening set, and he only made 57% of his first serves for the match. I thought that shot abandoned him, and it was just so difficult for him to manufacture any easy offense in this match. And it gets back to, again, it's just it's a bad matchup for Nori. It's just kind of like everything you want to do, Novak does a little bit better. Yeah, which you could say definitely about a lot of opponents for Novak, yeah, but sure. I, I don't I don't really love the way Nori went about this match. And like I hesitate to to say it as de- as definitively as I may for some other players because I have so much respect for Nori's tennis IQ, Nori's coach Facundo uh, Lagones. I think he's a fantastic coach, coach of the year. Um <laughs> but at the same time, I just I don't understand why he felt the need to be so aggressive at all times and search for finishes so desperately when it comes to approaching that hitting drop shots, going down the line with the forehand. And that's the big one. If we're being honest, I just, I wanted him to go cross court with the forehand, make Novak create something with his backhand. Instead, it was like, he was trying to rip the the forehand down the line. He was missing a lot. Well, that's why that first set was almost bait. Because I couldn't agree with you more. It was just like he was so determined to say, no, this worked for me earlier. Like, let me keep trying this. And it was just like, no, it's not working anymore. <laughs> like, stop. And yeah. at the same time, did you hear what you just said out loud? And somewhere there's a listener who's guffawing. Somewhere Yolinda's like writing down in her notepad, like Gil just said someone could attack the Djokovic backhand. Write down in mental notes. Like Nori should play cross court to the Djokovic backhand. That never works. It never works. And so the, – but I agree with you. It was like it was a patience thing. It's just like – Totally. The, the patience 
that he didn't really need in the first set because Djokovic gave him the error, but the facsimile of patience or whatever you, however you want to describe it, that he displayed in set number one was gone. We're in set two and three, and that's where the match slipped away from him. Yeah, and, and you make a great point about going to the Djokovic backhand, usually a terrible idea. Here's why it's not as terrible an idea for Nori, because it, it's a terrible idea for most players. <laughs> Djokovic is going to move most players around. He's going to apply pressure. He's going to be more solid, and he's not really going to miss very often. Um, and for most players, well, now I'm really tired. Now, now I'm playing. <laughs> now I'm playing re- really long rallies. This is awful. My legs hurt. My lungs hurt. I'm dying. This is horrible. I'd rather be anywhere else. That's most players. Here's Cam. I'm not tired. I still have my legs. I can run for nine more hours. So because Cam, what I'm trying to say, because Cam is such an amazing athlete, has an incredible endurance, he should not be afraid to be patient to the Djokovic backhand. It doesn't matter how solid Novak is there. It doesn't matter how much, how good Novak is at making players run with his backhand. It's still not, we're not talking about the Berrettini forehand here as far as uh, a scary finishing weapon. So the way, if Nori wanted to make this match physical, which I think he should have tried to do, that's what you do. You go safe cross court to the Djokovic backhand with the forehand instead of pulling the trigger down the line all the time. That's very well said. And I do think big picture for Nori, even in this match and throughout the course of this tournament, and it wasn't a doubt for him before. This is a guy who had made multiple third rounds, and you see who the losses have been to. Nadal, Nadal, Federer at the slams of late, a tough draw against an Alcaraz last year at the U.S. Open. I believe that's where that event was. You know, that's going to happen. Um but physically, that's the, the thing that separates Cam Nord, is You're right. He does have that gear where he can afford to be patient, to spread the court, work you over inch by inch by inch before that down the line is just a glaring lane for him to attack. And, you know, part of the reason I think he became so impatient, this is the flip side here for Novak as we begin to look towards the final, in his last six sets that he's won because you could go last seven sets total but the number is even juicier when you go in the last six sets that he's won he's lost nine total points on his first serve like nine points in six sets lost on the first serve you know he didn't hit a second growth spurt like he didn't put on a Berrettini like chest it's still Novak Djokovic out there but how well he hits the slice serve out wide on the deuce now. I mean, just his ability to spread that court there. And then he can hit all three spots on the ad side. T, wide, into your body. He can hit the kick a little bit when he needs to. But on this surface, just so effective at jamming your body so he has a look at a first ball. Is that, is you know, again, set number one, Novak Djokovic makes 55% of his first serve. Set two, 78. Set three, 63. Set four, 63. Is it that simple as just like if he serves well, he's going to win against Kyrgios? What is it about, you know, what has made the Djokovic serve so effective over these past couple of matches? He's so pinpoint. Mm-hmm. And it's also the execution behind it. Um, but, you know, it's no secret that, look, Djokovic's, the speed on Djokovic's serve is fine. Like, it's pretty good. A lot of players can serve that hard. The difference with Novak is his he he hits every spot from the same toss, and he has become an incredible spot server. And on grass, 
he's a better server than he is on other surfaces because his slice serve is his best serve. And, uh, you know, that skids and it stays low. And uh, you're absolutely right about his wide serve on the deuce side. And uh, look, his numbers were incredible against Yannick also. Like the last three sets against Sinner, he barely lost for serve points. Same thing today against Cam Nori. So that's a big question if you're curious. Like why why would Kyrgios, like I think we seriously need to ask this question, why would Kyrgios do better against Novak's first serve than Sinner and Nori did? It's a good question to ask. I guess the answer would be that, you know, Nick can be a bit more aggressive, like maybe, but not more than Sinner. Like I agree with you. I think mm-hmm. it's funny. Of every, if you were to rank all six wings, forehand, backhand, or turn, we're going here. Welcome back to the mini break, my friend. I'm so <laughs> glad we get to do this. All right, we're going to rank all six wings, forehand, backhand, returns here. Sinner, Nori, Kyrgios. I think okay. Kyrgios' backhand return is certainly in the top three of that conversation. We're going first serve or second serve return. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Let's um, say combined. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. Backhand, backhand return. I, yeah, I think Sinners is overall the best there. But I, I love Sinner backhand backhand return return. over every. Yeah, like over all the others, you take Sinner backhand over. I take Sinner forehand return. Man, that thing is. Oh, I didn't realize how we're doing this. Okay. Yeah. No. No. I'm saying we're ranking all six wings. Yeah. Look, rules are fluid here. Leave it all in, Westoff. But the idea being the curious backhand return. I probably go Sinner forehand one, Kyrgios backhand two, Sinner backhand three, Nori's two strokes in whatever order, four and five, and then Kyrgios forehand return six. Yeah, I, okay. I think that's good. I think you got it. Because <laughs> Tweet out a poll. Add yeah. <laughs> Gross, add A.L. Gruskin. Top six wins. <laughs> so I'll get like four votes. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I mean, Vance points so, out like, actually, you have to include the block <laughs> return. It should be nine wings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that. Yeah. Um, Curios's backhand return, the way he takes that so early with the short backswing and hits it so clean so often, there's really not a lot of time. And that can be such a deadly weapon uh, against the righty kick serve. Nadal's actually an amazing matchup for Kyrgios because he'll hit the serve forehand body. <laughs> That'll be his second serve, and it's so good against Nick. Yeah. Righties can't really do that. So it's going to be interesting to see what Novak does. More on the second serve, right? Because because the kick to Nick's backhand, that's not a great idea. You hit a second serve to the forehand. That's always against a righty, a little bit scary. So that's that'll be interesting. But as far as the first serve is concerned... I don't see Nick as uh, I, I see Nick as inferior to Sinner if we're if we're going to generalize here for yeah. serve return. I mean, I would agree. I just because I think Sinner's the more solid of the two. I think the the average depth, the average pace generated by a Yannick Sinner return, you just know what you're going to get. But to your point, who is the most dangerous of these three players against a hanging second serve? It's Nick Kyrgios, who, mm-hmm. with how comfortably he's holding serve over 94% of the time this season when you add in Wimbledon, which is just an all-time sort of season. And by the way, matches what you see with the eye test. You know, again, that makes Nick that much more dangerous as a server. If he's serving first in the game, uh, in the set, and he's up 5-4, it's 15-30. 
his forehand becomes that much more lethal. Because if you hang one, he's going after it. And if he connects, you lose the point. And he has that weapon. Again, Sinner's the better returner, I agree with you, because Sinner's far more consistent on the return of serve. Nori's a better returner big picture because he's far more consistent with his returns. But on this surface, in this moment, I think Nick is extraordinarily dangerous. And, you know, again, as you look at this match, certainly you look for Nick Kyrgios to be the representative of the 1995. Shout out, we finally make a Grand Slam singles final and, you know, first Grand Slam final for him in singles. Of course, he was able to compete on this stage in the Australian Open doubles final earlier this season. He's got the three days off, which, you know, did you watch his press conference today? No. Oh, How was put, it? Put it on your to-do list because, look— he faces significant allegations of assault, and he's going to have to go face those allegations in court as soon as this tournament is done. He's lost the benefit of the doubt for so many, given his treatment of officials, umpires, fans prior on court. And we had this discussion on Monday Match Analysis, uh, which all of you can go find on Gil's YouTube channel already. If he would have been this person from the start of his career, mature, thoughtful, measured, candid, Still funny, still a dry wit to him, but go watch his press conference today and the way he talks about what this moment means for him, the nerves he's experiencing. And he described how the night before today's match, hypothetically against Nadal, he got one hour of sleep because he was just so nervous, so anxious, so ready for the action to begin that it just wasn't happening for him. I didn't play at Nick Kyrgios's level, but boy, can I relate to that. Like, if I have a big broadcast the next day, I'm sleeping two hours max because all I'll be thinking about is, all right, what time is the broadcast going to start? I know I'm going to oversleep if I actually sleep, so I don't really want to sleep, but I know I need to sleep. To hear him discuss describing all of these things, I mean, again, dare I say, if you didn't know better, you might actually like Nick Kyrgios as a person here. Um, all of that said, I mean, you have to like his tennis career highs across the board, 21-6 and six now overall on the season. What does a Kyrgios win look like to you? Hmm. A Kyrgios win, it, it, it looks like, first of all, there are no – there are no lapses in focus. There, you know, some of the bad habits he has, especially, and these are especially costly in his service games. He's usually able to serve his way out of these moments, right? But a lot of the time you'll see Nick makes a bad decision or Nick gets a little lazy or Nick just kind of loses some intensity. It might be that he's up 40 love and suddenly it's 40, 30 because he relaxed. It might be the start of the game and he's down love 30 because for some reason he came out of the change of ends and he just wasn't all there. And against most players, he he serves his way out of that moment. But against Djokovic, uh, he needs to avoid that issue in the first place. Like we need uh, a locked in kind of buttoned up somewhat, you know, uh, Kyrgios, it's not, you know, he's not going to play lockdown tennis and not make, make mistakes. It's just he needs to... He needs to, first of all, they need to not come in bunches. And the way that happens is that he's doing the right things in his head and with his feet. And, and if he does that, I have, I have full faith that he's not going to miss that much from, from winning positions. Um, so I think that's the first thing. And then the second thing, it's going to, you know, a lot is going to be, I want to see how he handles the movement that Djokovic is going to ask of him. 
So if they're in rallies and Nick looks mobile and he looks like, like he can withstand the pressure that Djokovic applies in baseline rallies, that's also going to be key because at the end of the day, it's, you know, Kyrgios is going to need more than his serve in this match um, because Djokovic is, is just that good. So I'd say that's my answer. You know, I don't, I don't have that clear a picture in my head of it because more, more than anything, what I'm feeling is uncertainty (laughs) given we've never seen Nick in this position. Now, I also want to say, I think there's an enormous amount of pressure on Djokovic and as much as he's handled that pressure throughout his career, as much as he's the three-time reigning champion, the six-time Wimbledon champion, the fact that he hasn't won a major since winning Wimbledon last year, the fact that he may not get to play the U.S. Open, that he didn't win the Australian Open, he didn't win Roland Garros this year, there's a lot of pressure on Djokovic. And we saw the first set that he played. We saw the first two sets he played against Sinner. There's also, you know, this is also on Novak to to perform in the midst of all this pressure. You said it jokingly, but it's true. A, if he doesn't win a major this season, it is a disaster. Because one year ago today, he had won his third slam of the season. He was gearing up to go not only after the calendar slam, but the golden slam. Go get that elusive gold medal at the Olympics as well. Twelve months later, Rafa's two slams ahead. And, you know, your joke was, well, even if he wins Wimbledon this season's a disaster. And it's like, I mean, disaster wasn't the word you used. It's a rougher season for him. And that's not false. Like, it's not false for especially because if year 35, if this is still going to be his prime, you got to get the majors. You got to get the slams, pad the stats right now. And so you're quick, quick interjection. 2020, a one slam year. I think a lot of people look back on that and thought felt like it could have been more. Uh, you're interrupted by a pandemic. And yeah, it's like, well, but you're right because it's like if he doesn't hit the throat at the U.S. Open, that title's his. And it's just like, absolutely. It's a completely, I mean, now he's playing for 22 at this Wimbledon and then the whole perspective changes. To your point on Nick, and this gets back to his press conference today, we've just never had to see him play a match with stakes before. Like, With all due respect to all the success he has had in his career, and I think Indian Wells quarterfinals this year against Rafa was a significant stakes sort of match. I mean, obviously, he's played Rafa at Wimbledon early in his career and beaten him, uh, but it was never a Wimbledon final. You know, this is a guy who's won a City Open title. He didn't know. He didn't even know where he was. Exactly. He was he was uh, what, 18, 19 years old. Yeah, he was he still loved tennis like unadulterated, like un, unabashedly. And like there was never any flirtation with anything else at that point. It's still just the, you know, what what's the word I'm looking? The innocence, the innocence of being a young player and having fun. I mean, look, this guy who's made a master's final. It's a guy who's played in big matches before, but never like this. Never where there is significant incentive for him to block out all of the noise, all of the frustrations, all of the excuses to get angry and lose his form. And as I alluded to again throughout the course of these podcasts, I'm sure listeners are sick of hearing this analogy, but Basilishvili 
early in the grass court season. He loses the first set, breaks right out of the gate, wins the match in three. Tsitsipas, next week, round of 16, loses the first set, breaks right out of the gate, set number two, wins that match in three. Obviously, against the Nakashimas, the Jubs in this tournament, whatever happened against Tsitsipas, even when he's been distracted you know, by frustrations on court, he has managed to stay focused, stay engaged, and focus on the task at hand. And I think if you listen to his press conference comments, and it's easy to say these things out loud, but Nick Kyrgios has never said these things out loud before, despite how easy it is to say, it sounds like a man who understands, holy shit, like this is my moment. And if I this up, I will be so upset with myself that I will never forgive myself. And just like to hear him in the press conference be like, you know, now I've learned how long these weeks are and that you need to stay in after your second round match. And it's just like you realize a 24-year-old could have figured that out. Like a 22-year-old could have figured that out, Nick. (laughs) But he figured it out. And it's just like to his credit, now it's incumbent upon him as he's aware to not up this chance. And I think he knows that. And to your point, that's why when I look at this final, all I can think is uncertainty because, you know, what if he comes out nervous and the serve is misfiring? Well, then Djokovic is going to crush him. But what if he doesn't? What if he comes in out locked in, comes out engaged? And Novak Djokovic, who's gotten off to slow starts a couple of times at this Wimbledon, all of a sudden finds himself a set and a breakdown, bearing down the, you know, the barrel of the Nova, uh, the Nick Kyrgios serve, which has been the best serve on the ATP Tour this season on this surface. Like, there's a world where Kyrgios is up a set and a break. And by the way, in that same world, Djokovic could get the break back, win the match in four. Like, very, very possible. But that, like, the full spectrum of possibilities, I don't know why, but it feels, it, it just feels more certain than with Matteo Berrettini last season. Which isn't a horrible comp Wait, for what this do you mean? match. What do you mean more certain? Because going into that Berrettini match, it was just like, yeah, Berrettini's serve might be the single biggest weapon from a power perspective on the court. But you know Novak's going to find the backhand. And the moment he finds the backhand, it, there's just a glaring weakness for him to attack, for him to win this match. Easily, repeatedly, you see the pathway for victory. What's the clear-cut pathway for Novak, I suppose, in this match? Maybe that's why I'm so uncertain is because I know what a Novak win looks like, but I don't know what a Novak win against Kyrgios looks like. I I agree with I agree with the Berrettini thing. Like, yeah. I, yes, I, I think Nick is a more interesting opponent for Novak than than Matteo because, yeah, there's a clear-cut way that that goes uh, with, with Berrettini, and I, I agree with that. I guess, like, again, Nick needs to show that he can return and move and win baseline rallies on Novak service games. And and then it's here's the real question. It's a level of returning. It's a level of returning that. we, We just do not see players beat Nadal or Djokovic or Federer or Murray, for that matter. We don't see them win off the completely riding the coattails of their serves. Like these players who do that have horrific records against these guys, all of them. So Nick needs to show I have way more than that. And and we know he does in, in a lot of ways, like racket talent, shot making coordination. He is, he is miles above, not just Isner and Opelka. He's, he's above Berrettini and, and he's above Kevin Anderson. And I mean, 
he's above all of those guys. Harkach, mm-hmm. all of them. Not Karlovich, but, uh, but yes. <laughs> not Karlovich. <laughs> so, yeah, it's going to be like the serve's going to come back. Is Nick ready for that? No, it's it's a great question to ask. And look, you can throw in, uh, well, Kyrgios is 2-0 against Djokovic. Beat him in Acapulco in Indian Wells in 2017. But like... That was a Out lifetime ago. Lifetime Out the window. ago. Yeah. It, don't, I can't even look at those and look at them seriously. What I will say, big picture, and I apologize if I'm cutting you off here because I want to let you respond, but he's three and six against Rafa. He's one and three against Federer. He at least has beaten Djokovic. He has been one of the guys in an era where that is defined by lack of success against the big three. He's one of the guys where every time he's on the other side of the court, you're at least intrigued. You at least think, well, okay, he's got a shot. And even in this Grand Slam final, I think that's the crux of the argument here and why this match, despite – and we, I'm not going to get into this Sarah Spain around the horn segment that you informed me of. We don't have to get into the big picture, good for the game, bad for the game. Again, we discussed all of that on the Monday Match Analysis show, which all of you should go listen to. But there's no denying this match is inherently intriguing from a tennis perspective because Kyrgios has the sort of weapons where you just say, okay, at least he's bringing some guns to the fight. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he can come up. Look, the things he does creatively and the way he can construct points and kind of dissect opponents in different ways, like it is very special. It it is it is real. Like there is some Federer in his improvisational skills and his shot making abilities like that. That is a very real thing. It's just all um, mini break listeners just gasped that you just elicited. But I completely agree with you for the record. Yeah, it's just that here's the thing. Like Roger doesn't get lazy with his footwork. Roger takes care of his body and stays healthy. (laughs) Roger doesn't lose focus uh, in over the course of of a match. Um, Roger is just moves much better. Like there's there's a lot. I could go on. Yeah. Um, but, here's what I wanted to say about the head-to-head. Yeah, go ahead, please. Here's why I throw that 2-0 out the window. It's not even because it was a long time ago. Like, if Nick did that in 2015, I'd be like, oh, wow, cool. Good for Nick. No, he did that in 2017 when Novak Djokovic was coming off of the loss to Dennis Istomin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He went on to get destroyed by Dominic team embarrassed at Roland Garros. And then he goes to Wimbledon and retires against Tomas Burdich and, and calls it quits in, in 17. So like, it just wasn't Novak. Yeah, no, completely fair. And again, you mentioned that dynamic whenever, and three, a tennis show to hear more on this, but whenever I look at the big three in a vacuum and just like, why does every, why are the matchups so fun? It's like, well, a, if you were to construct the perfect player to beat Roger Federer, he would be a lefty who hits heavy topspin and is preferably best on clay. Wait, that's Rafael Nadal. Like, in a lab, we have that player. We found Roger's weakness. At the same time, how are you going to find the guy who beats Rafa? Well, he's got to have immense physicality, like iron lungs that he can outdo this specimen of an athlete. And he's got to be able to hit the backhand down the line and be able to handle the heavy topspin. It's like, okay, that's Novak Djokovic. Well, how do you beat that guy? You just have to not give a f- and be like, look, I'm going to do my thing out on court. I'm going to hit my serve. I'm going to hit my forehand. And I think my weapons are big enough that you can do your thing, but I have enough trust in my game that I can beat you. And that's Roger Federer. That's also in the kindest, 
kindest assessment of his game to some extent, Nick Kyrgios, where it's just like, yeah, that's cute. Like, you beat me on that one, and you beat me on that one. But love 40 down, I made five first serves, and I ended up holding. And, like, he's going to have to do that, but at least he has that gear in him. Yeah, the old, like, hit. you got to hit Novak off the court thing. Yeah. Like, because he's not going to necessarily take the racket out of your hand. Which, by the way, is you a need fallacy. Because do- no matter who you are, Djokovic is probably going to beat you. Like, let's just be clear. Well, right, but but yeah. then there's the serious question, which I think the answer at this point in time is kind of unclear about, and I don't know if you have, like, a, a stance on this, but, like, is it easier to just grind Djokovic down like Medvedev or Bautista Agut, or is it better to team or Vavrinka him and just hit the crap out of the ball and, you know, make him kind of look passive, which he, he's not until he meets a player like that, and they, they are so... They are so overwhelming in their offense that they can make Djokovic look passive. So I don't know which player is better against Novak. Let me ask you, what's the tougher question, that or solving peace in the Middle East? <laughs> I feel like it's I think, pretty close. <laughs> I agree. It's No, it's, it's very well said. And so, again, with all that in mind, I'm sure you will be breaking down the match for Monday match analysis. Should we use it as a tease or do you want to give your pick now? I'll give it. Um, it's uh, it's Novak in four. I I have too many questions about Nick. Like there's there's just too many, there's too many. Like what the heck are we gonna get? And that's enough uh, because I uh, I don't know how Novak is gonna deal with the nerves. Like I don't know if we're gonna get twenty twenty Australian Open final Novak, uh, or are we going to get? Um, I mean, it, it's tough to find an example in the middle. I'll, I'll say last year's Wimbledon final against yeah. Berrettini. He, he was tight, and, you know, he, he just figured it out, found a way. Um, I'm not sure which one, but I, I pretty much know that he's going to – his movement and his return and his defense is going to require an intense level of, a, of execution on Kyrgios' part, and, and uh, I think that's enough. I think that's a fair pick. I'm leaning that way as well. I had the hedge of hedges on yesterday's ace of the day. I took Djokovic to cover the minus two and a half set spread, which was minus like 220, which wasn't great. But then my hedge was you could take Djokovic to win three sets to one at plus 280. And I was like, yeah, let's let's just do that. I was like, let's do both of those things. And obviously he did win three sets to one. That three sets to one bet tomorrow plus 280 once again. So that would be the eye I turned to. I agree with you. And you know, there was that tweet going around about what an abject failure failure the next generation of players continue to be, that Djokovic and Nadal continue to just hog the slams the way they are. There is some burden on Kyrgios tomorrow. Like, can't lose 2-2-2. Two, two, and two. Just can't have that. Care on Sunday, whatever it may be, because that's a tough look, certainly, uh, for the next gen. Now, obviously, I think our next gen stands pretty firmly. Well, he's uh, not cemented. next gen, let's be clear. Are you saying I'm not next gen? I'm a little hurt. No, no, no. Yeah. When I say next gen, I say pejorative. It's it's the guys who are part of the initial marketing campaign. So 1996s and onwards. Are Nick all is next. in that? No, he's a 95. But again, I'm you just missed it. Look, so am I. All right, I know. I just missed. You know, what, Gil. <laughs> now, listen, Reese. Now is not the time for this nonsense. <laughs> um, 
No, I, I think that's fair. Um, the point being, uh, he is that next wave of players, though, because he was right in there in the conversation with Zverev, Chorich, Kyrgios. Like, that was the original big three of next prospects for a hot sack in 2014, 2015 range. And it's just like, you know, again, to his as he's mentioned, it was not the most direct path. It It's probably 10 years later, or 10 years, a half decade later than any of us assume, but... It's a fun matchup. It is. And I, I'm looking forward to the tennis. I, I think that's fair to say. I think a lot of tennis I, – I, like, again, I think everyone's going to tune in. I'm fascinated to see what the ratings will be. Yeah. It, if this delivers from a tennis perspective, I mean, there is a good chance that it doesn't. Like, yeah. again, we do not know. Yeah. Uh, I, I think it's going to generate an immense amount of buzz. That uh, And generally, the Wimbledon final is one of those moments that, that you know, it – it has the chance to do that. Uh, it is the summer. There is no NBA. There is no NFL. Everybody knows kind of to look for Wimbledon on a the men's final on a Sunday morning. We saw in 2019 with Djokovic and Federer just how big that can get. And I do think this has that potential. Yeah, it's going to be a fun one, folks. And, of course, we will be back here to recap it all, offer a little bit of an additional preview for all of you tomorrow on the Great Shot podcast feed. With that said, you got a women's pick for me? Women's pick. Yeah, I think Jabir. Mm -hmm. And I think in three. I think three sets. I mean, it's a similar – Rabakina is so powerful. I mean, I know, but good. I just love like yeah. I love Jabir's antidote is is what it comes down to. Like if you can't crush a slice backhand. Yeah. But can I give you the counter to that? What if the ball is crushed so hard at you that you can't properly hit the slice backhand? And now instead of a slice, it's a floater. Yeah, I I. I I think she's that adept with the shot that I, agree. I, I think yeah. it's a decent pace absorber also, right? Like the like Federer's, you can yeah. crush the ball at Federer's backhand. He can slice it. And yes, I, I agree. Some players kind of need the ball to need the ball to slow down a bit uh, if they want to execute that shot, but probably not Jabir. And, you know, the drop shots, how do you think? How do you think Rybakina is going to handle you know, those? I actually think she's got a great first step and I think she moves really well through into the court vertically. Like I think. What she's about a- when she's at net though? she's just so big. Like, that's the thing. It's just like she covers – there's just a lot of wingspan there. And it's just – it's going to be interesting. I mean, like, she crushed Halep. She crushed her. And, like, Halep served awfully, but Halep didn't play bad. Halep – she hit the ball well from the ground. It was just nothing she could do. I mean, I like Rabakina's out wide, do side slice serve. Rabakina is Sabalenka without the noise. Like, it's just like, okay, it's just like the standard, you know, clean edition of the track. And it's She's, fun. It's such a different way, though, about her. Yeah. It's so, it's not just quiet in decibel level, mm-hmm. it's quiet in like technique yeah. and facial expression. She's just good. Like, yeah, she is <laughs> yeah. just good. She, but do you- she reminds me actually of, of uh, maybe, I don't think there's a, a true male equivalent, but what do you think of female sinner in terms of the effortlessness Ooh. of the power from the back? Hello. Now we're talking. Um, no. What about a little chapeau to her? 
Like, I don't see her as wild. Like, I don't. Yeah, that's I don't true. think she like burns fuel. You know, like. Yeah, that's no. She's it's, in she's, control. In if control. If you were to describe, like, did you see the video of the fireworks blowing off in the car? scattering around tennis twitter during july 4th where like fireworks went off in someone's car and the car exploded huh. that's them right that's I just say. yeah exactly chapo and sabalenka is a pretty good comp like that there we go that's one we're throwing in there man oh now you have me thinking no because she's just like honestly what about berrettini it's like if berrettini could have a backhand but she doesn't have this she has the back rublev lock it in yeah again like uh the comparison with Sinner and her came from like Sinner seems like yeah. he's chill, but it's exploding off of his racket. And yeah. and again, like Rublev with the with the violent kind of technique with the racket speed is so apparent and he's screaming and, and all that. Like I, that's what I'm kind of going for is that she almost looks very ser- there's a serenity yeah. to her and it's still just so much power. Yeah, I think that's fair. I'm trying to think of the comp. It's kind of a, it's a little Aaron Donaldy, where it's just like it's just in your face, and you're there just you like, go. okay, Love I bl- blitz through. The, the She's a nose team. tackle. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Super Bowl champion nose tackle, albeit. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. And with all of that said, again, Monday match analysis, three a tennis show. I assume we're going to get both from you. Yes, uh, three has been recorded, and. Monday match analysis that it's technically a preview on the Gilgross YouTube channel that is coming up shortly. A preview on the Gilgross. It's just not, it's not an official Monday match analysis. Okay. And you yell at me for having three podcasts. This is exactly why we did it. Cause it was like the mini breaks, the daily recaps, cracked interviews is the interviews. And then like, the other stuff's a great shot podcast. It's like, you know, <laughs> the, the other stuff you want to do, just throw on there. And it doesn't have to have any rhyme or reason. And it's like, yeah, I get that. And so, okay, you'll learn, Reese. You'll learn. But with all that said, as always, immensely grateful for you taking the time to chat with us today. And sincerely, folks, Monday Match Analysis, three, a tennis show. If you're not listening to it, you really should. You will just be smarter as a tennis fan moving forward. By the way, preliminary line out via our friends at DraftKings. We are now... I'm doing the math in my head. Ten days away from Alex Gruskin takes on Los Angeles. Money line right wow. now. Gruskin minus 220 to knock off Gross. You can get straight sets for Gruskin plus 135 odds. I'd hit that right now. No reaction? I, I don't. I don't. Look, I do not comment on on betting lines in matches that I'm participating in. That would be highly illegal. The integrity unit would be all up in. Yeah, I just got a ding on my phone. There's the TIU. This is what they need to be investigating. Uh, I love it. But again, with all that, I appreciate you taking the time. A shout out, of course, as always, to super producer Daniel Westoff for the of an ending job he does day in, day out, making all this possible. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point as well. Tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all that said, for the fantastic Gil Gross, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Gil, what do we tell the people? That's the break. And we will see you all tomorrow. Thank you as always, my friend. Thanks, Grusk.